Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you're the mom the maid the keeper of the cookies you do it all and you look good doing it it's parenthood on a mother level here's your host denise hanitka hi everybody I'm Denise Anitka, and this is a brand new episode of On a Mother Level, episode 86. I am so glad you're here to hear this conversation with Lisa Van Wheel. She is the founder of a new cash-based physical therapy practice focusing on pelvic floor called the OB Gym. You guys know on this podcast, I love to talk about a pivot point. A pivot point is that thing, that hard stuff that came along that made you go, wait, I can do something different, I can do something better, and I can solve a problem that I had, and I can help other women. And so Lisa is the ultimate in pivot points, because she talks about how motherhood didn't come exactly as she pictured, you know? And she's honest about that, and I love that she's honest about that, because it's so needed in order for people to stop feeling bad about their motherhood experience. And it's so crucial to be honest about how she ended up doing this physical therapy practice, why she's so qualified to do so, and how she is going to help moms in our area because she's doing healthcare the way that moms need healthcare done. And I love her ideas, and I think you're going to love her too. At this time last year, Lisa was working in a nursing home, and she was putting her own beloved residents in body bags, one after another, because they were being killed by this virus. And she talks about that towards the end of this conversation. And even that experience has shaped the way she is building her new business right now. So this podcast is coming out. If you're listening to it on Thursday, this is also launch day for the OB gym. She's going to start taking appointments starting next week. So I hope you will enjoy this conversation, share it with a friend, follow the OB Gym on Instagram, and while you're at it, follow along with us at On A Mother Level on Instagram. So I start by mining the OB Gym's Instagram page because it is just full with a lot of realness. And so I read, to start things off, one post that really stuck out to me about trying to figure out what your lane is in motherhood, if there has to be a lane, and where you belong. 
so this was February and you wrote, can I be honest for a second? Taking a leap like this, asking all of you to come on this journey with me scares the ish out of me. I'm afraid of judgment and what people will think about me as I share pieces of my experience. I found myself wondering if I should even bother sharing my own experience or if I should stick to pelvic floor information. 85% of women have babies. There's nothing special about me. But then I thought about all the mothers I know and the knowledge of this connection we build. It's based in knowing how much we love our babies, whether they are with us on earth or not, and how deeply we want others to see us. For me personally, so much of my identity is wrapped up in being a mother. It's hard to remember who I was before Evie and how differently I knew my body. That kind of encompassing passion and connection is beautiful. It literally made me a different person, but it's also hard and scary. Sometimes I'm worried that I will get lost in this world of motherhood because I'm still me. Skipping ahead here. If any of that resonates with you, then I see you. I've been there. I am there. I think you're moving through motherhood so gracefully. And that's why I'm sharing these thoughts and putting myself out there. Even though motherhood is so common, it can be so very difficult to feel seen. That whole paragraph just spoke to me because I go through that with my own self, A, as a mom, but B, as a mom with a podcast about moms. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I just think, Okay. Okay. Like I'm one of a billion women out there who, who thinks they have the right to talk about being a mom, like get (laughs) over yourself. You know, this, this idea of staying in your lane, like lady, you belong on the news and no one can hear you complain about your whatever, you know? And then, and, and so I feel like that's what you're saying here in this post. It's like, should I just stay with this thing that I've been training to do? Right. Or do I like, follow this, this itch that I'm trying to scratch a little bit. Tell tell me about what was going through your mind when you posted that, if you remember. So it was right after I had kind of decided like, yes, I'm going to go for this. I'm, you know, really, really going to shake up my life and go for this new practice. And a lot of why I chose to do that was kind of rooted within my own experience of birth and with motherhood. And I felt like I was kind of at a crossroads of like, do I want to just be educational or do I want to kind of bring in the mental health aspect of this? And do I want to talk about why this is so important for me to be doing? And I think I was kind of struggling with some people will connect with this and some people will be so turned off by the fact that I'm not like a hundred percent in love with motherhood and that some of it is hard for me. And so I was kind of like, Oh, like, do I want to invite kind of that criticism in we, we won't be liked by everybody and our message right. won't resonate with everybody. And we do have to get comfortable with that. Yes. It feels very uncomfortable because the idea of someone listening to this podcast and turning it off in the middle makes me want to hide and never record again. You know? yes. <laughs> and that's not a way to go through life. You know, no. <laughs> I turn off podcasts all the time and it's not because I have an opinion of whatever voice is on the other end. I just like that one wasn't for me and you move forward. But, right. but the idea of knowing that you putting yourself out there opens you up to, to that too, is so hard. And I think too, there's like this idea that your message can get twisted. Like I've had a few messages you know, from people that I don't know that will say, well, if you don't like being a mother, if it was that hard on your body, then like, why would you do it? Or like, then you shouldn't have done it. And it's like, well, no, that's not the point. The point is I love my kid. I love being a mom. 
but something happened to me too. Like, this is my experience as well. And so I think, yeah, just that idea that messages can kind of become twisted and it's not what you were saying is difficult as well. Exactly. And I remember getting a few of those messages when I started talking about postpartum is there were a couple and granted they were from, you know, older people who I think were told to be quiet, you know, and so they're, that's their lived experience. But, but a lot of it was like, you know, some people can't have children and here you are, you know, like, so those are things that so easily can deter you from, from following what you want to follow. Right. Okay. So give people a little idea on your background. Okay. So you're a physical therapist, you're a professor at St. Ambrose. Yes. And how does this work? Are you going for like the second doctorate? Yes. Oh, wow. That's incredible. So what do we have to call you like Dr. Doctor or like Dr. Squared? Like what's the formal way? (laughs) I mean, nobody calls me doctor anyway, (laughs) (laughs) except my father-in-law. My father-in-law always calls me doc. (laughs) Oh, that's sweet. It is. It is. He's very proud. (laughs) But Okay. So tell me about this specialty that you're going for now in this second doctorate. Physical therapy is kind of in a unique position right now. And that it's just changed its requirements. So when you enter the profession, you will have to be a doctor of physical therapy now. So that's our entry level degree. Um, and so what's kind of happened is that now professors who held their doctorate in physical therapy technically are meeting the entry level requirements. You know, they don't have any extra education that allows them to be a professor. And so a lot of the physical therapy programs now are having um, percentage requirements of their faculty that need to hold a PhD or a doctor of education or a doctorate in science um, so that that allows them to kind of have this extra knowledge and extra expertise to allow them to be professor. Um, So they're they're two separate kind of doctorates. So um, the the PhD will allow me to be a professor and allow me to do research, but doesn't um, open any doors for me clinically, if that makes sense. Okay. So the PhD is just kind of like a passion of mine. Um, So I'm going to the University of Iowa for that. And they have a physical activity and women's health lab, which I was really impressed with that they have kind of this whole dedicated area and they have, you know, tons of grant money for these studies and the the doctor that I will be under, her name's Dr. Whitaker. Um, she does a lot of studies on pregnancy and activity levels in pregnancy and how that can affect both the child and the mother's health going forward. So we've been talking for, gosh, a year and a half now about me coming on and, and what we can be looking at. So my PhD will be specifically focused on like pelvic floor interventions and women's attitudes toward exercise and the amount of exercise that they get. Um, versus if they don't have pelvic floor physical therapy. Okay. So that's kind of, yeah. So first of all, like I'm, I probably shouldn't be, but I'm shocked that this like kind of research is happening so close to home. That's so cool. It is. That's very cool. Um, and then focusing on women's exercise, because I'm sure, you know, women's women and exercise has been such a problem for so many years because it's, it's, it's focused around weight loss and aerobics. You know, I'm thinking of like the nineties workout videos that like our moms used, you know what I mean? Like women and, and exercise is always framed differently than men and exercise. 
Yeah, which it's really interesting. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the book, Women Are Not Small Men. No, I haven't. It's really good. It's um, by Stacey Sims, who is a PhD from Australia. And she's done all this exercise on like hormones and when women are menstruating, do they need different things than men do? Um, And it's all like from the aspect of elite training. So like these really elite runners and basically like came to these conclusions that like women are not small men. Like we don't have the same training needs. We don't need the same nutrition. We don't recover the same ways. And all the studies on how athletes exercise and, you know, testing and prescription and all of that is based off male samples. And there haven't been any large scale studies on what women need. Yeah, And so it's just kind of this really interesting time in research, I feel like where more and more women are coming up and saying like, this isn't working for us. And that originally, um, her book is what got me into the PhD program. So I read her book and I was like, man, you know, this is really interesting. And it was around the same time um, that Mary Kane, do you know her story at all? So mm-hmm. she was an Olympic or I believe she was an Olympic runner, but she was like the fastest woman in her adolescent career, got signed with Nike. And then her running career essentially was ended because she got multiple stress fractures and multiple injuries because of this one specific coach that was pushing her and pushing her to lose weight and, you know, really cut weight. And that's not what a woman needs to do. Like she was already so fast. She was already so elite. And then they took away all of her nutrition and, you know, basically ended her career. And so it really kind of got the wheels spinning for me. Like we're not addressing women's needs and we're not, you know, she was a child. She was 16 when this all happened, you know, so she wasn't, you know, even an adult and not even meeting our framework then. So that's kind of like the background of me being like, oh, there's a lot to explore in this area. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Now I like have so many questions for you because I know (laughs) that you're like on your own, like little fitness journey. Um, I like to think that I'm on one of my own as well. And so, yeah, like I'm, I'm thinking, what do women need? Like, what, what am I not giving myself in order to, you know, feel more successful? I just posted on Instagram today that I feel like I'm in a little workout slump. Like, I don't feel like I'm getting any stronger, huffed up the stairs at the Y. And I'm like, how are you this out of shape? You go to the gym every day and you're barely making it up these stairs. I don't know. So what do I need? What, like, what do we, what do we do? (laughs) Well, I think one thing, especially for women that's definitely underutilized is like a registered dietitian. You know, there's all these diets and all these fads, you know, telling us what we need, but really what we need is pretty simple, right? You know, like we need carbs and fats and proteins and it doesn't work to completely cut any of those out you know our body runs the way that it runs but I think there's you know a lot of people especially in the fitness industry that are not qualified to be giving nutritional advice that do and I really think you know almost everybody would benefit from like a one-on-one consultation with a registered dietitian to say like this is my activity level. These are the things that I do. This is, you know, how much time I have to cook realistically and coming up with a plan or, you know, a check-in system and really getting some like 
personalized advice for what fits you and your lifestyle. Yeah. Well, Um, the lifestyle portion is so huge because here we are, we're busy, we're working, you're studying, we're being moms and we're not trying to make a meal for ourselves and then a meal for our husband and a meal for our kids. Like that's not the goal here. (laughs) No. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, yeah. And that's the other thing is there's all these like really great advice where it's like, yeah, if I had eight hours a day to cook my meals, I would love to eat that but I can't do that. And so I think like having a dietitian talk you through like things that can be prepared or like there are meal services. Um, one that I've used is eat to evolve and they send you pre-cooked meals and you just microwave them. Are they good? So like, but do they taste good? They're, they're they're okay. Okay. Like, it's not something that I would crave if that makes sense. But like (laughs) when I am in a pinch and I'm like, okay, I need some good, healthy food. It's there. And I don't, like, it's not bad. You know what I mean? But it's not something that if I went to a restaurant, I would be pleased yeah. that I got it. <laughs> okay. Well, you're not going to be a product ambassador at this moment. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. <laughs> but it's realistic, right? Right. Sure. You know, sure. That is something I can do. It works for me. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah I'm not, not going to give glowing reviews, but it's, it'll do. Okay. Well, I appreciate you being honest about that because if you had sat here and said like, oh my God, like it's. <laughs> so good. Then I would have been like, oh, this girl's the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. So is that a good chance then for us to segue into this concept of the OBGYM? Is that like how, how you say it? Or do you say OBGYM? Like what, what do you think? I've been saying OBGYM, but then, you know, obviously when I say it that way, people think that I'm a gynecologist. So (laughs) I've been spelling it out more and more, (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so what what is this concept? What is it that you're working on? OBGYM is a cash-based public floor physical therapy service. So cash-based meaning that I am out of network for all providers. So there's a set pricing system and then, you know, we go from there. Um, but I'm really focused on public floor. I've been kind of marketing it as pregnancy and postpartum related, but it really could be anyone, you know, men have public floors as well. So there's there's a lot of people that could be coming in. I'm kind of specifically interested in the pregnancy and postpartum. Um, and I think that's when a lot of people become aware that they need that help. So that's kind of been the focus. It does, I will also be offering, um, I've been calling them like developmental checks for infants. So, you know, when you go to the pediatrician, they look at head shape or things like that. Um, but a pediatrician, when they're just doing kind of that quick glance over, they might not see that oh, there is, you know, a pretty big asymmetry or something here. Like my daughter um, had plagiocephaly. So one side of her head was slightly flat and she had it because she had reflux. And so it was something that I at home couldn't be fixing because it was just, you know, it was comfortable for her. It wasn't that she had like a range of motion issue. And so I really had to fight to like get her to be seen. We got her fitted with a helmet and got her head shape corrected. But it was something that my doctor wasn't seeing and not because she was a bad doctor I really like her doctor um but they're just not trained in the same way and so I've really become passionate about like getting people in to be screened or just checked at like the two to four month mark just to make sure that there's nothing going on because we can correct it really really easily in that first you know eight to nine months when their soft spot is still open so that is something that I'm offering that's not quite pelvic floor but it's kind of adjacent. 
so yeah, so it's a cash-based pelvic floor PT practice. I'll be located at the movement in Moline. Um, I've got like, my little office upstairs going. It's very exciting. Yeah. The big idea there is, you know, that we're correcting these issues and then we're returning to exercise. Because I think that's been a huge piece that's missing is that there's a lot of pelvic floor practices and then there's a lot of mom's fitness classes, but there's no bridge that's saying like, hey, you're not ready for this. So I'm going to program something different for you this week. Okay. Or, you know, there's these missing pieces there where it's hard to make the connection. You know, we're not only doing exercise, laying down with somebody guiding us. Eventually we want to be returning to other activities that are meaningful for us. That's kind of my hope is that we're bridging this gap. And I hope that my patients leave and are independent with their decision-making and are able to kind of scale exercise for themselves and, and feel really in tune with their bodies. Well, and I know that one concept that's important to you is the idea that one doctor's visit for mom at six weeks is clearly not enough. And yet it's something that we're, we've all come to accept as we get cleared at six weeks and see you never. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's been a, just a huge pet peeve of mine is, you know, so Evie, I believe was seen at 24 hours in the hospital. And then she was seen again before we left the hospital. So that's twice, one week, two weeks, we were seen at four weeks and I believe six weeks. So we've got six or seven appointments for Evie there. And all that happened to her was exactly what was supposed to happen. Like she got born, <laughs> you know, that's fine. <laughs> and I was seen one time at six weeks, despite having a grade four episiotomy, a vacuum birth, seven hours of pushing. And then I had endometritis, which is like a severe uterine infection. And I was seen one time. And then, you know, you get cleared for everything. So think about all the things that you're not doing in that immediate postpartum period. Like you're taking the stairs as little as possible. You are not exercising. You're not having sex. You know, there's all these things that you were doing that you were no longer doing for those six weeks. You had a major injury. And then this one appointment where you don't even get a full internal exam and you can do everything that you want. Like right. that, there's a huge disconnect there. Well, when I hear that you pushed for seven hours, I'm, I'm horrified because I pushed for over three and I'd never heard of anyone who pushed longer than that. So, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Like how, yeah. how did that, ha like, and I think that's been a frustrating thing for me too, is that I don't know why I was induced. I had Pitocin but we never got past one. Like there's a scale that they use and I never got past one because my body was reacting so strongly. Um, and then I got an epidural and again, I reacted pretty strongly to the epidural. Like I could not swallow for oh a short period of time. So I do think that that played a factor. Like I think that my epidural was just turned up too high and I wasn't able to feel what I was supposed to be doing. But at the same time, you know, like after two hours, I started asking for the doctor, like, I don't feel like we're getting anywhere. I think that something is wrong, you know, and the doctor never came. And so I don't know, you know, it could have been a very busy day. She could have had a lot of births. I don't know what was going on, but no one was there. And then she did come in. Like I said, I had been saying, you know, something is wrong. 
And immediately she walks in, I'm given oxygen and we're told, you know, like you're probably past the point where we can do a C-section. Like we don't have time to prep you Oh my gosh. because the baby needs to come out now. So we are going to give you one more push. We're going to use the vacuum. <gasps> and if that doesn't work, we're going to do a C-section, but we don't think that we have time. Like we don't think that the baby will make it if we go that route. Oh my gosh. I got her out. We used the vacuum. They gave me, you know, a grade four episiotomy. She was out. She's healthy in that aspect. Very, very blessed. But there's still, you know, like this deep feeling of like something happened to me in any other context, but birth, that would have been, you know, a huge, huge deal. Like that would have been assault that I was cut without consent. And, you know, that I was forced to lay in this table with nobody coming to help, even though I said I needed it. Just these things that didn't go right that I've never gotten answers for or never gotten acknowledged. And when I've gone back in, it's been from the frame of mind, like Zach and I would like to have another baby, but we don't want that to happen again. We have gone in and said, you know, we don't want anybody to say it's their fault. We don't need like a, it happened because of this, but sure. But what we're asking is, is it something that happened because of me? Like, do we need to plan for a C-section next time? Or, you know, do we need to have a cutoff point next time? Or is it not like a good idea for me to have a baby again? And so those are things that we've asked and we've never really gotten an answer. But I will say the doctor that delivered Abby is no longer with that practice. Okay. So just these questions that we have still. Yeah. See, and after pushing for as long as I did, I did have a C-section and I'm eternally grateful that I did because I felt at that point I needed one, you know, from, Mm -hmm. from the lack of progression that I was having. And so I'm, I'm really grateful that that, you know, that that's where the decisions were made for me, but, but gosh, I'm, I'm so sorry that happened to you because you're right in any other circumstance this would be a traumatic event. I think you posted about that where you said, you know, I would, I would face my accuser or my (laughs) accused in court. You know what I mean? That would be assault. Right. And I like to make the point too. It's not that I would have refused the episiotomy. Like I wanted my daughter out and healthy. Of course. It's, It's that I want the acknowledgement that something was done to me. And I think that's kind of a piece that's missing in maternal healthcare is like, we go through all this and at the end they're like okay here's your baby get out of here and it's like oh but I'm I'm really still processing everything that happened to me my body is not the same I have you know this other person to take care of and I don't know if your experience was the same but like after Evie was born whenever people would come over how's the baby is she sleeping can I hold her and it was never like how are you doing do mm-hmm. you want to go take a nap like have you slept today and right. you know there's just this kind of focus on the baby which is good and which we love but also like I'm still here I'm still right. processing for me it was more like I I felt a great deal of shame in the fact that my husband went back to work and I have a hard time asking for help. If mm-hmm. I had asked my mother-in-law to come help me, she would have, but that's not really me to ask. And so I remember mm-hmm. taking Everett, my second, to a couple um, like baby chiropractor appointments. Uh-huh. And I had had a, I had had a C-section and I'm driving around with an infant uh-huh. and the commentary from like the receptionist and even the chiropractor was like, why are you here alone? What are you doing? 
And I was thinking in my head, like, you have no idea what my circumstances are. Right. I'm sorry. Am I supposed to have hired a driver? Like, right. you're the one who should have come to my house. <laughs> you're worried about how I got to your office. Yes. There, like, it made me feel so ashamed that mm -hmm. I had dared pass through their thresholds you know, without a, yeah. a buddy of some kind, like, and could I have asked for one? Certainly. But I just didn't like the, why, what are you doing? Why are you right. here? Yeah. That was such like a shameful moment for me. And I, and I realized they were coming from a place of you need more support, but I didn't right. feel like that. Right. I didn't feel like they were saying, let's get you some help. They were like, something's not right with you. Yes. <laughs> <stuff>. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, those were, those were some really, really hard times. Those were some really hard times for me. It was very hard, but I think just like having the space, and that's been important to me with OB Gym too, is having the space to say, like, I, I need some help physically even. Just like, mm -hmm. I want to feel myself again. So that's been, it's been kind of empowering to like come back and say like, okay, that wasn't okay. So I'm changing it. I want to change the system that we're entering. I want to give people these tools. And so one thing I've been really trying um, to do is like these two week postpartum screens. And so, you know, like a good point that you brought up, like moms do not have time to get their baby together, find a babysitter or take them with them to go get screened at two weeks. And I do think that's kind of part of the issue with the six week appointment is like, if we're putting all these mandates on moms that we need an appointment at two weeks and four weeks and six weeks, that becomes really hard for a mom to do, right? Mm -hmm. So I've been trying to like add in this platform for virtual, like online postpartum screen where we go through and say like, what's going well and what isn't going well. And do you want me to come to your home and evaluate some things in your house to give you tips on, you know, making carrying easier or setup easier? Um, so that's one thing I've really been trying to do is just getting in there earlier and planting this seed that like, we can fix this. There is hope. We don't have to be stuck in this time period where you feel hopeless and alone and scared and hurt. Like we can fix that. We're going to move forward. Yeah. And so that's something, you know, I would love even for that to be given at baby showers, you know, could you give your best friend like a checkup at two weeks and say like, I'm here for you and I care about you. So that's just something that I've been really trying to promote as well. No, I love that because how many of us had gifted a prenatal massage to our friends right. and then, and then, yeah, what she needs is a little TLC after right? something yeah. better than like weird breast pads. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So hearing about your birth experience and then I know some other things like all of that kind of shaped, like how you see motherhood, you know, you've been honest yeah. about like she was wanted, but unplanned and you're young. Right. And like, you know, so a lot of, a lot of your entry into motherhood felt a little turbulent. Can you talk yes. about that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, I was still in PT school. Zach is my husband now, but I had just met Zach, you know, three months earlier, found out I was pregnant. I was going out on rotations. So I wasn't even home. And I like, you know, found out I was pregnant oh my goodness, you know, like, what am I going to do? Like I've said, Evie was always wanted, just very, very unplanned and wanted, you know, very much by both of us. So immediately, you know, plans started changing. And I, when I was in PT school, 
I was the president of the graduate school at Ambrose. I was, you know, on the board at the APTA. I was doing all these things and I had been trying really hard to set myself up for a residency after PT school. And it just became clear, you know, like very, very quickly that that wasn't going to happen, that that was not going to be, you know, the next step that I was taking. And so I kind of went through my rotations and my focus went from like learning more to like, I just need to get a job and I just need to get paid because like I hadn't even lived with Zach to this point. Yeah. You know, so I had just moved out from my roommate that I'd been living with for two years, was traveling around for my different rotations, had, you know, a somewhat complicated pregnancy. I hemorrhaged twice. I tested high for AFP. Um, we had to do ultrasounds every four weeks to make sure that she was still growing. So there were all these kind of like complicating factors. Add to that that my parents lived in Delaware. So I had no family support here. And Zach's parents are very, very lovely people, but we hadn't known each other, you know? So there was these boundary conversations that were taking place and just like a hard relationship to build when you're pregnant and there's expectations from both sides coming in. And so it wasn't even, you know, that I just was lacking family support. It was also that I was having, you know, these interactions that weren't always positive with other family. You know, I graduated, had Evie, and then Zach and I, which I think was expected, hit a rough patch because like I said, we hadn't known each other. We have very, very different families, very, very different backgrounds, and just different expectations of what our lives with a child would look like. And so I ended up moving out and got my own apartment and Evie lived with me for a year and Zach, you know, saw us when he could. He travels a lot for work. So there are sometimes months when he's gone. So this past winter, he was gone for five months, almost straight. Oh, wow. So there are just kind of all these complicating factors of like, what has happened to my career? And am I going to end up with my baby's father or is my life going to look a lot different than I pictured? Yeah. And, you know, just, I'm not sleeping. (laughs) You know, Evie was not a super easy baby. (laughs) And so there's just these kind of other factors where I really, really was questioning myself of like, am I cut out to be a mother? And, you know, not that I ever didn't want her, but but it looked a lot different for me than what I had pictured when I was growing up and what I thought my family was going to be like. And so there was somewhat of a, of a disconnect for me of, of what, what was happening in my life and who I was, because I've always, you know, seen myself as a very ambitious person. You know, I wanted to continue my education. I wanted to really excel in my field. And I felt like, I sacrificed a lot, which I was willing to do, and I would do again, but it was a huge loss for me to not be able to continue school and not be able to leave this area when I wanted to and not have a really great relationship from the beginning, and, you know, I will say we've done a lot of really great work. We just got married last month. I think everything kind of turns out how it's supposed to when you're honest with yourself about what you want and honest with what it's going to take to get there. So I will say I'm extremely proud of us. I'm extremely happy. But it was a season of a lot of loss for me, yeah. loss of control, loss of, you know, everything that I wanted. 
and not to say I regret any of it, but just, it was, it was a huge mindset change for me. No. And you don't have to keep filling it with disclaimers. You know (laughs) what I mean? And I know that's what the tendency is because, because of course you're going to grab onto the new normal, but, but you're right. There is loss there. There is loss of the way it was supposed to be or Mm -hmm. the way I had planned it to be, you know, and, and sometimes motherhood looks like that. It just, it's different for everybody for sure. And so then it makes sense why you try a mom's group, you walk into that mom's group and you're like, I don't know if this is me. I don't know if I'm the right kind of mom to be here. And that was hard too. That probably felt like a little bit of a setback where it's like, well, I'm a mom now. I should be able to fit in with the moms, right? And this is something I've had to kind of come to terms with as I've gotten older with and without being a mother, but like, there are people that fit into your life at certain times that are perfect and great fits at that time in your life. And then things change and they might not fit anymore. And it's not that there was anything bad about it. It's just that you're not in the same place anymore and you're not, you're not sharing the same things. Like a lot of my PT school friends were lovely, lovely people. I, you know, had so much fun with them. They were some of the greatest friends I've ever had, but I no longer feel the need to keep feeding that connection because it's just not there anymore. And Mm -hmm. that's okay. And so that's something that I've really had to like come to terms with and mature, you know, just in myself is that like, it's not bad that we're not friends anymore. And it's not bad that that didn't work out for me. There was just, it wasn't right anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I think that a lot about different mom groups is that there's just a tendency for like the community to meet the needs of who's in it. Right. And so like I tried a mom group and they were all just like older than me had, you know, a couple kids, they were in like these great marriages and it just really felt like they had their lives figured out. And I think it was clear that I did not at that time. What I needed was different than what that group had to offer. Right. Yeah. But I mean, when you wrote about, you know, one of the icebreaker questions, being like, tell me your favorite part of your wedding. Like you probably wanted to leave right then, you know, being a mother does not mean that you're married and it doesn't mean that your relationship is great every single day. Yes. And I like really, I think it sticks out to me so much because I tried to be very nonchalant about it and like, oh, I'm not married. So we'll see. And I just kind of like threw it back and like, please let's move on from me. Yeah. You know? And then for whatever reason, we could not move on from me until I gave an answer of like, well, what will be your favorite part? Or like things are going so poorly in my relationship right now that I can't, there are no thoughts in my mind about this. And I would like to just move on. It was just like a very, very uncomfortable (laughs) moment for sure. I can imagine that because the last thing we want to do is feel out of place and feel Mm -hmm. like we're, you know, which of these does not, you know, is not like the (laughs) other. It it brings back all those old feelings of, do I belong here? And so I think it's very cool that you're like finding and like creating a fit for you and finding a way to help other women in the process, which I love. Yeah, I'm really excited. And I do just have to say that I would not be doing this if I had not found the right group. So I went to the movement um, where her name is Courtney Porter. She's kind of the leader of the moms group there. And she like had 
a similar mindset to me in her postpartum period of like, there's not enough help to get people back to exercise. And there's not enough just kind of knowledge on how to do this safely. And so she like took a lot of next steps and got certified. She's followed OBs around and, you know, done a ton of education for herself and offered this program, you know, for free for any member of the gym and created a really, really cool environment where there's a lot of different moms, you know, there's, there's people who have been remarried. There's people who are single that are raising their kids. And it's just like a very cool environment. And she does a lot of like, we'll do a partner workout or we'll do just these few things to help build the connections. But we're really just all there because we want to be active and we're trying to better ourselves. And I think that was a really helpful mindset for me of just like coming in and saying like, okay, this is my me time. Mm -hmm. This is my time where I'm going to get better. And for me, when I started, it wasn't about making friends. And I do think that helped me because when I went to the first group, I was like, I need moms, like I need support. And I was needing so much that like, if it wasn't a hundred percent right, it wasn't going to fit versus coming to the movement where I was just like, I just need (laughs) me again. Yeah. So I was able to focus on myself and like find these connections more naturally. But anyway, so that was just an amazing group for me. And Courtney through my whole process has really pushed me to say like, you have a platform that I don't, or, you know, you're a physical therapist. You can be doing more if this is what you want to be doing. Yeah. And so she's really, really pushed me and helped me to create this. And so OB Gym is a partnership with her mom's class. So, so patients of mine can buy the programming for her class, or they can come to our group class once a week. Um, So there's these options for community and connection as well. Okay. So now when I look at the movement though, on Instagram, I'm like immediately intimidated because I'm like, oh, this is one of those like CrossFit places where like, you got to be part of the culture and the community. (laughs) Otherwise you do not belong here. Like, is it like that or is it not? I don't know. Like, Okay. So I will say, I totally understand that because I, before I started going was always just like, CrossFit is like too much, too intense. Everybody gets hurt all the time. Like it's kind of like this crazy group of like psychos in the fitness <laughs> world. Like, yeah, they're out there. But my experience at movement has always been awesome. And we have like a huge range of people. I think there's maybe certain people that get like photographed more or are more comfortable having their photographs sure. put on the website. But like we have so many members who are like, on a weight loss journey, or, you know, we have at least one member with Parkinson disease. Um, We have several members, you know, that have fought cancer while going to the gym. And it's always been just super, super welcoming. And they do like group workouts to honor each other. Um, One of our members, his mother died last year, and we all every year on the anniversary have done her workout. It's really a good community And the coaches themselves are super into scaling. So like, if you cannot do the workout as it's written, or if you could, but you might get hurt, you know, like you're pushing a little bit too hard. They are the first ones to tell you to bump it down. And they have, you know, five or six different things that you can be doing so that you're still working on what everyone else is, but you're doing it for you and what's going to be healthy for you. So I think it's easy to get intimidated. Yeah. I've always felt very, very included. 
Well, good. I'm, I'm glad you found a place that makes more sense for you and gives you, you know, what you need for sure. Can we talk a little bit about what, um, your COVID experience was like, because your work part of it was really, really intense. So where were you working during the pandemic? So during the pandemic, I was split between two different nursing homes in Muscatine. About seven months ago, I switched from the nursing homes and have been working in a hospital in an inpatient side. Okay. So I've been down in the ICU there. But when when truly COVID, front lines, I mean, on both fronts. Yes, I would say the nursing home for me was definitely more intense okay. than being in the ICU. So it was March last year, right when oh, everything yes. kind of went went crazy. So then in April, one of my nursing homes had an outbreak. And we had, I think we had 72 patients and every single patient got it because we just, we weren't prepared. Yeah. You know, we didn't have all the equipment. We didn't have the safety measures yet. Um, So every single person had it except one patient never did test positive, but she was in a room with, (laughs) so we think that all 72 probably had it or she had some weird immunity, Um, but all 72 had it. Um, my DOR and my physical therapy assistant both ended up getting COVID. The occupational therapist I work with is 67. So she would come in and do the visits that she needed to, but otherwise she wasn't in the building for her safety. Um, so it was really, it was me and an OT assistant that were in the building. Oh my gosh. And we had two nurses for all 72 people who all had COVID and it, it really was horrible. So we ended up losing over 20 of our residents. I think it was 26, which, wow. you know, we lost over 33% of, of our people. And I think sometimes what people don't realize is in a nursing home, like we take care of the same people every day for years and years. And, you know, there's certain people that like we had one woman who ever everybody called grandma. She, you know, she didn't want to be called anything else on her nameplate on her door. It said grandma. And so there's just people that you really, really love to care for and that you get to know. And so over a two week period, we were coming in every day and there was one or two people that had died in the night where we would rock in the room and somebody was on the floor dead. And it was just terrifying and we were all there not knowing what was going to happen to us because it was still so new that we just didn't know. So I actually had sent my daughter to live with my parents and she was with them for a full month that I didn't oh, wow. see her. Um, yeah. And the, it, it was just, it was a crazy, crazy time. Um, the coroner was so busy that he just dropped body bags off with us. So we put our residents, you know, that we love very much into the body bags and would set them by the door. And it was like, how, how did you get through those days? We honestly had a great team, like that nursing home. We had all of, you know, our nurses, our CNAs, we had our team. And I think, you know, we all, all witnessed incredible suffering in that time, you know, like the people were so, so sick and so miserable and you know, a lot of our therapy was we would go in, we would wash them and shave them so that when they died, they were, they were ready to go. And that was a lot of our final days with people. So I do think in seeing that suffering that we were able to process, like it was better for them to go. And we did everything that we could and we, we took care of them and they were very loved in their final days. And so I think that 
gave us some closure in that way. But the, I think we did all struggle for like a year or so afterwards of just like, what have we seen? And, and you know, then to go out in the community and see people refusing to wear masks or saying, you know, that COVID wasn't real. It was, it was really harsh for us because we're like, if you had seen what I had seen, you would know. And it was like a slap in the face kind of to see people say like, that wasn't a big deal. Again, it's, I think it's funny when you are given these experiences, you're also given, you know, like the unique privilege of having lived through that and have been a part of that. So then my second building had an outbreak and I think it was August. So it was several months later and we all came together and we said, what happened last time cannot happen here. Like, these are the things that we're going to do. We're going to see the sickest people first. We're making sure they get up out of bed every day. Like we're not letting people get pneumonia. We're not, we're gonna really be ahead of it this time. And we did, we only had, I think, I think we only had five people die in our second facility. And so it was a huge change and we felt very useful then in that way. Mm -hmm. So the second outbreak obviously was not good, but I think it did allow us to get some kind of like redemption and feel more useful and feel like we had a little bit more control. Yeah. And I do think it changed our mentality a little bit. Like we did something, we helped yeah. in a big way. Um, so I do think that was helpful. Going back to that first home though, you talked about, you know, these patients you had been with for years and- mm -hmm. And now their families aren't allowed in. And mm -hmm. so you are all they have. Like just that's so much weight on your shoulders to manage the unpredictability of the situation. Plus you have to be strong for, for everyone in that situation. I do think a lot of the healthcare workers that have been in those situations, I do think that we, or at least I, I'm speaking for myself. Um, I disagree with the the no visitors policies. I think we lost so many people to depression and loneliness this year. There was a time where it was reasonable to limit visitors. And I think that that time is very long past where, you know, we could take measures, we could do things safely. And I think it's cruel to not let people be with their loved ones. Um, and even so, um, my grandmother passed away a couple months ago and not from COVID. But we hadn't seen her in over a year because everybody was so worried about giving COVID or, you know, these things that, that we wasted a last year with somebody very precious to us. And maybe, maybe she wouldn't have declined the way that she did if there had been more stimulation and more things going on. And I think, I think it's been hard to, to justify some of that lately. Yeah. So I do think it's hard because like I said, you know, I took COVID very seriously. I think, it, you know, there was a time when these things were justifiable and were necessary, but I do think we have to look at people's quality of life now too, and say like, we, we need to think of mental health and think of, think of these other things as well. So I know all of that experience also plays into taking this next step. Oh yeah, absolutely. So with the second building, we kind of went off protocol. Um, Cause like I said, we said, we're not doing it the same way. We yeah. are seeing the sickest people first. I'm putting my time in with the people who cannot get out of bed without me. 
I'm not going to let people lay flat and get pneumonia. And so we didn't, we didn't do things the way that the facility would have liked us to for the highest reimbursements rate. Hmm. We did it, you know, this is the way I feel that I am needed. Um, and we saw, I think we had 76 people that we had to discharge and then reevaluate. So I reevaluated 76 people in a three-day period, which is crazy. Like those evals normally take two hours a piece. Wow. So I was like burning and churning. I was bringing my computer home so that I could get these people what they needed. And then we were, we were reprimanded for it, that we didn't, that we didn't get the highest reimbursement possible. Oh, wow. And that for me was just a huge eye opener of like, well, what am I doing here? You know, like you can see in our numbers that we did this the right way. Like we went from 33% to a less than 12% mortality rate. Like we, the way that we did this worked. We We saved saved people's lives. (laughs) And, and you're, you're telling me that I didn't do it right because you lost a little bit of money. That just didn't sit right to me. And there were, you know, these other experiences that I had in the nursing home. You know, one of our older gentlemen was refusing to eat and he had some intellectual disability. And it was because his meal ticket had his allergies listed on it. And he was reading it thinking that his allergies were on his plate. So he's allergic to strawberries and he thought that his menu ticket said strawberries. So he wasn't eating anything. And so I would bring in food and I would feed him in our therapy room. Well, then I got in trouble because he wasn't eating what was provided, but the man was starving to death. He had lost 25 pounds. So what am I, you know, and I just kept finding myself in these situations where I was like, what am I doing here? And, you know, why am I, why am I helping these people and giving them everything that I can? And it's insurance companies and it's a system that's coming back and saying, no, you can't help people in this way when what we're doing is working. Yeah. And so for me, it was just like this eye opener of like, our healthcare system does not work. It does not work for specific groups of people and marginalized groups of people. There's a way to step away from that system and get people the help they need. And so that's a big part of why OB Gym is cash-based is because like the insurance companies see the money that they're making. They're seeing, you know, progress and seeing what's happening on paper, but they don't see, you know, all these other factors. And when they control your care, they're really putting a limit on what your potential is. And so like pelvic floor specifically, you know, if you're only peeing your pants when you're weightlifting, the insurance company doesn't care. They're going to tell you not to weightlift, you know? So, and right now you have a 26 year old that's just had birth and she's peeing her pants with weightlifting. So she stops weightlifting and then she becomes inactive and maybe she gets diabetes or she has high blood pressure or she gets depressed because she's not who she is anymore. She has lost muscle mass. She might develop osteoporosis because she's not, you know, creating this good bone density that she was through weightlifting. And then we see her at 65 and she's broken a hip from her osteoporosis. And guess what? She's still incontinent because what was stressful at 25 is, you know, a lot different than what's stressful at 65. So like getting out of bed might be her new weightlifting and she's incontinent. She's broken her hip. She's in bed and she develops a sore. Like there are all these things that can be prevented and are prevented when we empower people and when we do the work in the beginning and insurance companies don't see that. And so it's, it's just, 
if people are given the tools to help themselves, I think 90% of the time they do, you know, people don't want to be helpless. They want to feel good. And so I just, I really believe in putting the power back in individuals own hands. How can people support you on this journey? So referrals are going to be huge. You know, like I said, buy your best friend a postpartum screen, Yeah. you know, get your, get your kid in at two months. Um, and that is another thing I will say, I'm not following an insurance model. So I don't need you to come in two to three times a week. If that doesn't work for you, if you want to check in with me one time a week, one time a month and make sure that you're on track, we can do that. It doesn't have to be a money pit. You don't have to pay your $60 copay three times a week. You can give me $50 once a month if that's what you can do. And then I do have GoFundMe that's up on my OB Gym Facebook page and it's up on my Instagram as well. So just, you know, the reality of a small business when you're starting out is that there's, you know, space fees, there's equipment fees, there's all these, you know, different kind of moving parts. And like, I do have a family, I'm trying to protect them as I take this journey. And so giving even a little bit of financial cushion to me as I start will be big because I do think that we can get there. I think this will be very successful and will be like self-sustaining. I just am trying to take some of the pressure off while I start. So those are going to be the biggest, biggest ways. Just tell your friends, like it doesn't, you don't have to pee your pants forever. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to leave it at that. Unless there's something else that you want to say, where can people find you? So I am on Facebook. It's at the OB-GYM. And Instagram is the same at B-O-B-G-Y-M. And I am working on a website. It should be up and running very soon, but it will be www.theobgym.com. Wonderful. Well, this is so cool. Thank you so much for for being so candid and sharing so much of your life with me. I really think you're going to help a ton of moms this way. Thank you. I hope so. So my congratulations to Lisa on a successful launch day. And I just love her idea of finding a way to nurture our mom friends by gifting them a postpartum screening at the OB gym. So something to think about because I know we all wonder and ask each other like, okay, what, what, like, what can I do? What can I get her? A bottle of wine? I don't know. Get her something that might help her for a lifetime. So Uh, reach out to Lisa to get more information on that at the OB gym. Okay, so one more thing I wanted to tell you about. You guys heard a couple months ago an episode with Jessica McCurney, and she talked about her little boy Hudson, who is dealing with childhood cancer. And so she wanted me to pass along some information about his blood drive that is coming up in this uh, fall. So it's the Hudson's Heroes Mobile Blood Drive, and it's going to be Saturday, September 18th from 9 to 2 in Eldridge at the Parkview Lutheran Church. And so when you donate blood, there's a very real chance that that blood, which is in very short supply right now, could help a childhood cancer patient, someone little like Hudson. And so Jessica came on the podcast a couple months ago to talk about why blood donation is such an important mission for her. And so I'm happy to share the information about this blood drive. Um, Obviously, it's not until later on in the fall, so I will remind you later on, but this is your reminder to go donate blood. And quite frankly, my reminder to donate blood because I just became eligible again last week. And so I need to go do that and sign up. Takes 30 minutes and you get cookies at the end. So 
um, super easy to do and so needed right now, especially if you are eligible to do so. All right. That's this week's episode of On a Mother Level. So happy that you're here and that you shared this episode with a friend. The shares are so important. It's how the show grows. And I'm grateful to everyone who sends me feedback and says that they told a friend about it because it's um, women supporting women. We need that. We love that. Thanks so much. Have a great rest of your week. And as we always say on the show, when it comes to parenthood, we can relate. You have been listening to the WQAD Podcast Network.